Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. That was Kiki. She's married to Nick, who was going to bring this up again this week. <laughs> you, you feel in so well, Kiki. That's awesome. Hey, thank you all so much for your warm welcome. Emily and I have loved being here with you all, and we're looking forward to some more time with you. Uh, as I mentioned last week, we're not going to be here for a number of weeks. Uh, we've got other responsibilities that we have to take care of, but you're going to be so well cared for. We'll continue with the series in Philippians. Uh, next week, Kyle DeRoberts, Dr. Kyle DeRoberts is going to come, and he'll do those two weeks, and then Dr. Daryl Dell, who say that many of you know are going to be, his, going to be here for the month of April. And so after that, we'll be back, and then we'll be just look forward to continuing on until God provides the pastor he has for you for the future. Isn't that great? So I keep that in prayer. You have some great candidates that are coming, and uh, I'm just very thankful for the work this, the board is doing and the search committee is doing. They're working diligently to try to find out who is that next person for church here. So God bless you guys, and keep on keeping on. All right. You know, there's a story that's told about a guy who was stranded on a desert island. And their ship comes by one day and sees a smoke signal from this island. They said, that's an uninhabited island. Why is there smoke coming from there? So they come over and investigate. They find this guy who's there, and he is ecstatic because finally, after many years, he is going to be rescued. And so they're, they're getting ready to put him in the dinghy, take him back to the boat, and they're saying, well, where are the others? He says, what others? I'm the only one here. He says, well, but there's three huts. Why are there three huts and only one of you? All that. He said, this hut, that's where I live. This hut over there, that's where I go to church. Well, what about the third hut? What's that all about? Oh, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> so you guys get how frequently that happens? Especially in the last few years. I got to tell you, it is no laughing matter. I've looked around and seen such a reshuffling of the deck in a way that in my 45 years of pastoral ministry, I've not seen anything like it. Oh, there's always been trading goldfish from one aquarium to the other. That's always been the case. But in the last few years, it has been especially noted as to how much division there's been in the body of Christ over things like, do we wear a mask or do we not wear a mask? Do we get vaccinated? Do we not get vaccinated? What do we do about addressing the cries for social justice within the church as well as within our society? And it seems like those things that are really, really valid questions, but they have become so divisive and created such polarization of the body of Christ. Do you guys notice that as well? I know you do. You, you're on the internet. You know, you're in conversations. You know what I'm talking about. It reminds me of something that, that Max Lucado said, and that is this, as long as Christians split hairs, they will continue to split churches. Is that right? Too many times the things that we argue about that causes dissension and division within the body of Christ really aren't that much when it gets right down to what unites us or should unite us together. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, from the beginning of the church, there's been a need for unity. This is not just a 21st century issue. This has been around since the first century and way before that. But from the beginning of the church, there's been a concern, and especially the importance of unity is critical when facing the outside threats. We've been looking in the whole issue of Philippians, 
And what we see is two to three years before Nero's persecution in Rome really ramped up, which is in AD 64, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. Now, we talked about last night, it's not in a prison cell like we think of. And what Aaron talked about in Acts 16 was a prison cell. They were shackled, as they talked about there, in Philippi, the very city that we're talking, and he's writing a letter to today. And that's when the angel of the Lord, as they praise God, sent a great earthquake, and those prison doors sprung open in Acts 16, the text that Aaron read from. So now, to about 10 years later, this is AD 61 or 62, the Apostle Paul is imprisoned, but meaning he's under house arrest in Rome for what crime? For preaching the gospel, for preaching the good news that there is a Christ, there is the Messiah who died on the sin, a cross for our sins, and was raised again from the dead. And because of that, it upset so many different people that he's now in prison awaiting trial, not knowing whether he's going to be released or die. And you remember from last week, he said, either way, it's okay with me, for to me, to live is Christ. And if I die, that's simply gain. What a great perspective that brings joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. Well, today we're going to be addressing some evident divisions that were in the church, even the first century church of Philippi. How many times have you heard somebody say, oh, I wish we could get back to the New Testament church, to the first century church, as if they didn't have any problems? Have you read your Bible? I mean, especially Corinthians, but even in Philippians. He's saying, look, some are preaching the gospel and some have pure motives, and some people, they really are doing it to cause me pain. I don't quite get that one. But there was division even in ministry within the church. And then if you read chapter 4, he addresses two women, Syntyche and Euodia. He said, he calls them out. He says, hey, by the way, this letter, I want you to ask them, get along. Come together. How would you like to have your argument within the church listed for all of history to see? No, thank you, right? But there were issues even within the church of Philippi. There was a need for unity. And so we see this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and I've entitled it, United We Stand. Now that may sound like something that comes out of a history lesson from America, and invariably, I, I hear this quote kicked around a lot. It's usually attributed to Benjamin Franklin upon the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I'm not sure that's correct because it predated him from the research that I've done. But it's this, since it basically is saying, we must hang together or surely we will hang apart. And so when you're facing problems, when you're facing issues, when you're facing uh, opposition like Paul was in the church in the first century, wouldn't you think that would cause them to band together instead of being separated over petty differences? So in this, Paul writes a letter, we call it an epistle, and we call it a prison epistle because he was writing from imprisonment, and it begins in chapter 2, where the section begins in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I just want to look at the first two verses of this where he says, pursue unity with other believers. So what do, I, what do I want for you? What's Paul saying to the people in Philippi as he's writing from Rome? Pursue unity with each other. Listen to what it says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy, there's that word again, which is a hallmark of the book of Philippians, 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full in one accord and of one mind. Doesn't that sound like he's calling them to unity? Sure it is. Well, what's the basis of that unity? You notice it says, if there's any encouragement. And by the way, this is set in the context of the opposition they're having. You look at the very first word, so, tie it back to the word before. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but should also suffer for his sake. He's saying, look, if you're going to follow Christ as I'm telling you to follow Christ, you're going to suffer some opposition. Well, because of that, all the more you should be united with one another. So he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Well, I can't get in time, and I probably flunked Greek when I went through it, so I'm not going to pretend I'm not something. I know a little Greek. They run a restaurant on the corner, all right? So anyway, it is so. This is called a first-class condition. It could easily be translated since. Or if you want to say that if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, by nature of the construction, and if there's any comfort from love, and there is any participation in the Spirit, like there's one Spirit, and there is any affection and sympathy that we're the recipients of by our position in Christ. If that is the case, and it most certainly is. Now think about that. Are all of those things true? As a follower of Jesus Christ, is there encouragement to know that we don't have to walk alone? That Jesus is walking with us. He has been called alongside of us to walk with us. Is there a comfort from knowing that we are loved by Jesus Christ, the Son of God? A love that goes beyond anything that we as individuals can have and who is sourced in him, for God is love. Is there comfort in that? especially if you've such a rejection on the part of other people in your life. And every one of us, if I ask for a show of hands, and we're honest, every one of us would have to lift our hands that we have been rejected by other people in our lives. We have been betrayed by other people in our lives. One who will never do that is Jesus Christ. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There's comfort in that, isn't there? There's fellowship with the Spirit. There's koinonia. We're connected. We do life together, but we don't do it alone. As we walk through this life, we walk in the Spirit who's resident within us. If there is affection, if there's tenderness, a brotherly love from Christ and for others, and there is a bond that puts us together as fellow believers in Christ, isn't there? We are united in Christ is what he's saying. And there is sympathy that comes from Christ. There is, we don't have a high priest, Hebrews says, that can't identify with us, but who's been tempted in every way that we are, and yet gets it. He gets us. Don't you love those commercials that are on TV? He gets us. That is exactly right. He gets us, and he is ever living to pray for you. If nobody else is praying for you or praying for me, guess who is? Jesus Christ. You, can you think of any higher authority to appeal to? Anybody that's more in touch? He's saying, since we have these benefits as brothers and sisters in Christ, then make my joy complete by being united with one another. And he appeals to our identity in Christ. Since we've received these things, then complete my joy. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. 
Be in full accord. Be of one mind. It sounds like that's repeating. You get the point? I want you to be unified with each other. Now let me tell you, unity and uniformity are not the same thing. Last week I mentioned one of my professors, the one that was my advisor on my, my master's dissertation, and basically, or master's thesis, and he used to have this statement, it's great in marriage, but it's true in any relationship, and he said this, look, if both of you agree on everything, then one of you is unnecessary. <laughs> Can I get an amen for that one? <laughs> if both of you agree on everything, then one of you is unnecessary. You're irrelevant. Isn't it interesting how God puts when relationships people who differ? Isn't there a beauty in that? Is it there? It's a matter of like, look, we are better together. None of us is as smart as all of us. It's a matter of we are, there's a benefit when we have diversity in the body of Christ. We are not to be like little cookie cutter Christians. We are not called to uniformity in how we think, how we dress, how we act. We are called to unity, and there's a world of difference behind that. People with diverse abilities and diverse perspectives and diverse experiences, and when that all comes together, friends, that's a part of the multifaceted grace of God. You ever see a diamond and see the, the light come through a diamond and see how it just refracts and, and sparkles all over the place? That's multifaceted. And when the body of Christ exists within diversity, but yet unity, it's even more beautiful than best cut diamond as God's sunlight comes through it. We are better together as a result. So don't think this is just of one mindset in the sense that everybody has to toe the party line, so to speak. There's benefit in interaction. That's one of the problems that bothers me and grieves me the most right now is we are not talking with each other we're trying to shout one another down in our culture have you experienced that so why can't we say well why do you think that way what does it lead you to that conclusion even if you're saying inside you are such an idiot <laughs> if, if you just understood the truth you wouldn't have this problem whose truth what, what information stream are you listening to? There's a great uh, video that came, I didn't plan on saying this, but I'll throw it in for an extra charge. So Netflix called Social Dilemma. And one of the things about Social Dilemma is we listen to things, but there's algorithms that feed you the very information that you started listening to, whether it's news, whether it's television, whether it's programming. And so what happens is you begin to listen to that and you're in an echo chamber and it's reinforcing the same mindset. And you're thinking, well, these are the facts, Jack. This person's listening to a whole different set of facts. We need to talk with each other, seek to understand one another, love one another, be patient with one another. Do those not sound like things that are in the scriptures? And yet the body of Christ, that's a great demand, but short supply right now. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says this, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, because Ephesians was also one of those prison epistles. I urge you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
I like the way the New American Standard says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That says to me like, the unity is not the problem. The Spirit of God is there. Where it gets whacked out is when we enter the picture and we're walking in the flesh, not in the Spirit. The default setting, biblically, is there should be unity for brothers and sisters in Christ. There should be love, there should be grace, there should be mercy, there should be understanding, there should be patience. But that's not the case. Notice what Paul says, based upon your calling as followers of Christ, since you have these things, then do this. He's not asking you to do something that outside of our nature. This is our nature as followers of Jesus. We're simply producing the fruit of the Spirit who dwells within us. There is a value in diversity, but we need to try to strive to come together and work toward the same purpose. You know, I, I grew up in a household. My dad, I never really wanted to be a pastor, to be honest with you, because I saw my dad was a, a, a contractor. He was a business person, and he had a great ministry for Christ. Truthfully, my mom wanted to marry a pastor, and she married the biggest hellraiser in town, <laughs> just to be candid, till God got hold of him. And that's a whole nother story. He passed away a few years ago, and we shared this at his memorial service. But one of the things I remember about Dad and his ministry, he traveled around the world doing things that pastors oftentimes never have the opportunity through the ministry of the Gideons. Here the Gideons are, there's the people that are really forgetful and they'll leave their Bible all over the place. <laughs> they got their name right there on it, the Gideons. Okay, but man, I forget stuff, but not like that. No, they are doing something. My dad had the privilege of being actually the president of Gideon's International for three years. That's as long as anybody can serve. And during his season of presidency, he had the privilege of going and meeting with President Jenny, Jimmy Carter, who was in the White House, and present him a copy of the 200 millionth copy of Scripture. It was a commemorative copy that had been distributed through the Gideon's ministry. It's amazing. You know what, this is a group of people from all kinds of backgrounds. There's Baptists, there's Methodists, there's Presbyterians, there's Assemblies of God, there's all kinds of people, those that are very charismatic and those that are not charismatic. They're all over the map as far as they relate to their, their doctrinal stance. But you know what has allowed them to do what they do? And by the way, it took them 70-some years to get to distribute 200 million copies. They're doing that every few months now. Wow. It's exponential to see what God is doing around the world. Why? Because they're organized around two specific purposes apart from their differences. One is personal witness, sharing how they came to, know, came to faith in Christ. The second is distribution of God's word around the world. They stay focused on those central organizing principles, and they are united, though they are very diverse. Do you see what can happen if we lay aside our stuff and trust God for what he wants to do? Well, in order for that to happen, here's the character quality that has to be demonstrated. It's in verses 3 through 4. We need to exhibit humility toward others. Listen to what it says. Philippians chapter 2 and 3. And I'm going to put these on the screen. Do nothing 
from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others to be more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. You see why unity requires humility? Whether it's in a marriage, a family, a business relationship, a church, or between friends. Whose rights, whose needs are going to take priority? Isn't that the arm wrestling that we go through so frequently? Yeah, and they were in the first century. I think it's important to understand this. Rick Warren said this in his book, Purpose Driven Life. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Now, it's interesting. You may read that, and if you go around, well, wait a minute. C.S. Lewis said that. It is attributed to C.S. Lewis throughout many different places, but he didn't say it. Rick Warren did Now, full disclosure, last week we get in the car after the service, and Emily says to me, boy, Rick, that was really a great sermon. Thank you for sharing that. She says, but. (laughs) Now, I think she envisions herself as Prissa and Aquila, who showed to Apollos the way of truth more clearly. I don't know about that, but she said it was a great message, but. I mean, we hadn't cleared the parking lot, so I'm, I'm, oh, great, what did I do? What did I say? She says, but I really don't think that Henry Blackaby used that quote that you used about we serve before an audience of one. She said, I'm quite sure that was Oz Guinness in the book, The Call. And she's right. She's absolutely right. And I knew that. I'd even pulled Oz Guinness's book off. I took it straight out of there. I gave the credit for the right book. Wrong author. It happens. Okay, right? So please forgive me for misquoting. (laughs) In this case, the reality is, look at what Rick Warren has said. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Isn't that a great way to paraphrase what the Apostle Paul said? Look, he's not saying don't think poorly of yourself, like I'm a worm, I'm scum, I'm I'm nothing, I'm ridiculous, this is just there's nothing I can do. I don't think that's honoring to the fact that God says you are created in my image, that you are my image bearer. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every single one of us is a person with incredible dignity and worth and value as God sees us. So don't diss what God has made. However, he's saying, understand that. Don't just look after your own interest but consider the needs of others to be more important than your own. Don't put yourself down, but voluntarily say, I'm gonna relinquish those rights when it's necessary to meet a need in your life. Isn't that what the passage is saying? We need to serve one another. And that's what we're called to do, humble service of each other considering the needs of others to be greater than our own. Vanitha is a woman who, in her blog, Dancing in the Rain, talks about how Valentine's Day, though it should be a day for celebration of love, was always hard for her. It was hard for her especially since the night before Valentine's Day, some years before, her husband of about 10 years told her, I don't love you anymore, 
and two weeks later moved out and ended up getting a divorce. So now Valentine's Day is salt in the wound. It's associated with that very distasteful and hard issue in her life. And she's saying when it would roll around, I would start worrying. I would stop being concerned. I would start getting to the place to where I just didn't look forward to it as an understatement. And she went into this funk and into this grieving and into this mourning. Her focus was like, what I don't have and what I'd lost and what the future is going to look like that I never asked for. But she's a follower of Jesus Christ, and she began to go into the Word, and one of the things that God brought to her is, look, I love you. And she came to the point where that hurts, that does not define her. And she said, I have a love that is more foundational than the acceptance of others because of the love of Jesus Christ for me the value that he places on me. And then God used something she had read in a book by Chuck Swindoll many years before when she was a college student, and that book is Improving Your Serve. Sounds like a tennis book, doesn't it? But it's not. It's about how we deal with one another, improving your serve. It's about Chad, a little boy, whose mother was concerned about him because Valentine's Day was coming up, and Chad began to work hard to do valentines for every child in his class. You remember those days when we used to distribute valentines? And I don't know, probably in the third, fourth, fifth grade, somewhere like that. And he worked diligently to make sure he got valentines that were really well done for everybody in his class. And his mom was going, oh, he is setting himself up for a fall. This is going to be terrible. Because, see, Chad wasn't like the life of the party. He would, when all the other kids were on the bus and they're coming home, they're playing and playing their games and laughing, and he's following a respectful distance behind. And she said, I just know my son, in his pure and innocent heart, is going to get trashed when he doesn't get any Valentines, even though he's given all these out. That day he came home, she'd made chocolate chip cookies for him, had some milk for him. She tried to soften his landing. And she heard him say as he came in, not a one, not a single one. And her heart just fell knowing he didn't get a single valentine. And then he said it again, not a one, not a single one. I didn't miss a single one. Friends, sometimes it's the children that can lead us into what true love is. Maybe we should be more innocent like that. Maybe we should be more naive like that because his focus was not on his needs of receiving Valentine's, but on giving them. What a great picture. And that helped Vanitha from that Valentine's forward to be able to see it in a different way and to say service of others is a key thing I want to give myself to. How about you? How about me? In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter echoes the words that Paul says when he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Because, or for, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Are you really trying to protect yourself, or you're entrusting yourself to the hand of a living God who loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to die for you? Another is Wendell's books that Emily and I loved years ago, and I don't know, we've moved a couple of times. I'm not even sure where it is now, but I'll never forget this. He talked about it, the book is home where life makes up its mind, and it's about the interaction with children. 
And one of the things he talked about, the clubhouse, and how he learned a lot from this clubhouse, these clubhouse rules. I think they speak to this. Clubhouse rules, what are they? Say it with me. Nobody act big, nobody act small. Everybody act medium. Are those good rules? You know what? That'd be good rules to have in our household, in our church, wouldn't it? Nobody act big, nobody act small, everybody act medium. And I think what Paul's saying here, we go to it all the time. It's, it's amazing how frequently they say, remember the clubhouse rules, and it's a great reminder for us. From verses 5 through 8, though, we are to do this. We're to follow Christ's example, who set the premier example of what we're talking about here of humble service. Listen to the verses, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider or count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Can there be any greater example? There are many things in this passage that we learn. The first is this, Jesus Christ is God. You notice that? It leads with this, the existing in the form of God. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's clear that Jesus Christ is determined as different from all other religious leaders, for he is God. But it also tells us in this passage, Jesus became a man. He humbled himself and took upon himself flesh. John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh, God became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love what Peterson says, and that is he took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. It's the way it puts it in the message. He moved into the neighborhood. Why? Because he wanted to know us. He wanted to show us the Father. He wanted to show us the things that were important and demonstrate them. So the question oftentimes in theological circles is, okay, well, of what did Jesus empty himself? Did he cease to be God? The answer is no. He never ceased to be God. As a man, he accepted human limitations. What are some of those human limitations? He was dependent as a child. Can you imagine a child being born and eyes not being able to focus yet and can barely see light? He's the light of the world, and yet physically he can't even make out objects. Do you know that Christmas said, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes? What? What baby do you know that doesn't cry? That's how they communicate when they're wet, when they need their diaper change, when they need something to eat. Why would we believe Jesus didn't do that? We shouldn't, regardless of what hymns teach us or statements teach us. The Word of God never says that. Now, he was dependent as a child. He was confined in a human body to one place at one time. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired. He could physically suffer and die. And he chose to humbly serve others, his disciples. Even though that was not his place, 
He chose that place. See, though he had human limitations, Jesus never ceased to be God. And this is one of those issues we should divide over, that there is a unity. We ought to be united on this truth, and if people do not agree with this, then that is a legitimate reason for separation. Not to not love them, not to not respect them, Every person, every man, every woman, every child, irrespective of their gender, irrespective of their socioeconomic background, irrespective of their religious beliefs, is worthy as a child created in the image of God, even if they're not born again, to be respected, to be loved, to be heard. So don't hear me saying that when I say separate, but we shouldn't associate in the sense of being the closest with them and trying to be united with the people of all differing views. There are places for division. This is one of them, one of a very few. The deity of Jesus Christ, he never, ever ceased to be God. And this is one of those major things that heresies have happened throughout history to where people are either, well, he really wasn't God, he was a good man, but he wasn't God. Or on the other hand, well, he was God, but he really couldn't have experienced these limitations. No, in a mystical, mysterious, absolutely mind-blowing way, Jesus was simultaneously God and man. That's what this passage is saying, and we should not shy away from it. Colossians chapter 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him were all things created, and in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus never ever ceased to be God. The scriptures don't allow for that. But notice what He says in Matthew 20. And the context of this is where the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. At the conclusion of that, Jesus said in verses 27 through 28, Whoever would be first among you must be your servant. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of God, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We call ourselves followers of Christ. But in this area, are we? The very Son of God who chose to lay aside his rights, his privileges in order to serve those of us who didn't deserve it, but because he loved us, was willing to do it. In John 13, we see how Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, he takes a, a place, the disciples come together for dinner. You're, many of you are familiar with this. And they get in there, and nobody wants to wash each other's feet, their stinky, dirty feet. Because as they recline at dinner, your feet are right behind the person next to you. And yet, who is it that takes a towel and a basin and wraps the towel around himself but the Lord Jesus Christ himself? The text tells us in John 13, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And he chose to wash their feet even the feet of Judas, who he knew would betray him. He loved his enemy. He did good to those that spitefully used him. See, that's a difference of the love and humility for us in the body of Christ that's different from the world, who loves oftentimes in order that there's some reciprocity, there's some quid pro quo, I will do this for you, 
but I expect you to do this in return. Friends, that's not love. That's manipulation. Jesus is saying do it when there's no expectation of a positive return. He says this, you call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. Let me hit the pause button right there. Jesus was not doing this that they would like him. Some of us minister to others because we desperately want their approval. That's a wrong motivation for ministry. It's not wrong to desire it, but it's wrong for that motivation to, motivate, to, to push us in that direction. Jesus did not question who he was. He said, you call me Master and Lord, and you are right. And he goes on to then say, if I then, as your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, what's the takeaway? You should wash one another's feet as well. What a great picture of that. I don't know what that looks like in your family, but I guarantee it's a target-rich environment. I don't really know what it's like here at North, especially as you're going through a leadership transition, but I guarantee you there's a whole bunch of different perspectives, even among the group that's here that's really solid, and I applaud you for not using this as an opportunity to jet and go somewhere else. Thank you for standing in the gap. Thank you for being here. Thank you to the elders for providing godly leadership. Thank you for a search committee that's working so diligently and needs your prayers and your support and your encouragement, even if you disagree with the decisions that are made. Thank you for Aaron and his team that are so capably leading in worship to keep pointing us to Jesus every week because that's the focus, isn't it? And if we're focused on Jesus, then the rest of some of this petty stuff, this personal preferences, this is my conviction, this is my perspective, this is what I think we should do, all comes under subordination to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great group, and God's doing some great things. Just diligently strive to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In verses 9 through 11, Honor Christ's authority above all else. Look at what God does, how he responds to what Jesus had done. Verse 9, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What a great statement. Friends, it's all about Jesus. He is the one who's above all else. He is the one whom we should worship. He is the one whom we should obey. He's the one. He's the audience of one that trumps all others in our lives that we talked about last week. He's the one that we should say in, for, in verse 21 of chapter 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. C.S. Lewis, and this is an accurate quotation of C.S. Lewis, from Mere Christianity, talks about how people oftentimes say, look, I, I, Jesus was a great religious leader. He was a great person. He's probably the greatest human to ever live. But God, I don't know. I don't get that. And C.S. Lewis, many of you may have heard this, says this, Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, he thought he was God, or something worse. 
perhaps a liar. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus did claim to be God, and for that reason he was crucified. He, being a man, makes himself out to be God. And there's coming a day in history when every knee, those that are followers of Jesus and those that have studiously resisted him and rejected him, will one day come to the point of saying, I was wrong. He is who he said he is. The question is, for those of us that are followers, do we obey him today? Do we humble ourselves? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says this, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Friends, if Jesus humbled himself the direction that, that he did, who are we to say that we can't or won't do that? Who are we to say, I am going to insist on my rights and my perspectives and my preferences? Will we humble ourselves? It also says in the next verse in Peter, that's an anxious place when we do humble ourselves. He said, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I want to close this morning with an example that I've seen up close and personal of this. Eight years ago, I resigned as senior pastor at Desert Springs. <clears throat> but before that happened, we had a young guy on our staff who had come to faith in Jesus Christ through our ministry, and, uh, and really, everything that he did, we gave him assignments. He did a great job. He knocked the ball out of the park, even though he was very young. His name is Caleb. Not this Caleb, but there are more Calebs out there than Caleb, okay, in your house. Well, we went through some transitions, and Caleb one day came to me, and he says, Rick, I need to ask your forgiveness for something. I said, what is it? Because I had no idea. He said, I have been angry with you because you all fired a guy that was a good friend of mine. And friends, it should have happened. I believe we were right. I believe that we were as grace-filled as possible in the implementation of that. But all that Caleb could see is that we had hurt his friend and his family. And he said, so I've been trying to take people away from the church clandestinely. And he said, I was reading in Hebrews where it says, you young men, be submissive to your elders, for God has given them charge over your souls, and to God they will give an account. And he said, I was convicted because I was not doing that. Will you please forgive me? That began a relationship that ended with Caleb becoming the next senior pastor 13 years later of Desert Springs Bible Church. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. He didn't agree with all the decisions that were made. He brought in line, though, and worked in unity with us, even though there were points of disagreement. And believe me, he and I butted heads in many different things, but it was always in love and respect. And he brought himself under the direction of the leaders. And God honored him and that humility by giving to him the position of the senior pastor of that very church where he had originally tried to take people away from. You know, on the day that I resigned, people said to me, well, 
and then I went back to work for him as an associate. Think about how that works. And a lot of people came to me and said, man, that takes a lot of humility. That's amazing. Yeah, on his part. What? I said, don't you think he's got people in his ears saying, you want the old man still around? How do you know he's not going to undercut you? How do you know he's not going to be against you? <clears throat> we both had to exhibit humility. And God has honored that in amazing ways. How does he want to do that here at North? I don't know. But you got the greatest example of all of history. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Have this mind in you that was in him. Serve each other out of a heart of love and humility and leave the results to God. Let's pray, and then Aaron's going to lead us in a word of just uh, song, final conclusion. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of your spirit to make this become a reality in our lives. We pray that the result would be both honoring to you and healthy for us. Thank you, Father, so much for your love for us, and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you relinquished, you did not hold with a, a clenched fist. You emptied yourself that you might serve us because you love us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. If you're here and need prayer, there'll be some prayer people over on the side that would just love to stand with you and pray with you even this morning before you leave, whatever that need is. If you've got a request and maybe you just can't hang for a few minutes, go ahead and write that request down and put it in the boxes at the back so they can continue to pray for you as well. We're so glad you came this morning. I want to send you out with this reminder that that which binds us together is, that, is, is much greater than anything that can tear us apart. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy in a manner of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your calling. There is one Lord, one faith and one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Whatever that gift is, whatever your perspectives are, bring that in unity as you look to Jesus. In him we are unified. God bless you and have a great weekend as you follow him. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.